Grab a seat. Well, here we are. You know, nothing is uh, more comforting in times of distress, in times of trouble, times of hardship than someone telling you that what you're going through is actually okay and it's normal. You know, you, you know if you've ever had this scenario in your life, you know, you're feeling chest pains, you're having, your body's doing strange things, you, you start freaking out, your mind goes through all these scenarios, so you go to the doctor and, and, and you, the doctor says exactly what you're hoping he's going to say, which is, you're fine, you're okay. What you're going through is normal. What you're going through is normal. Okay, it's like the difference between labor and cancer. You know, watching my wife go through contractions and, and giving birth three times, it was intense and it was painful, but we knew that it was okay, it was normal. Contractions are normal. Cancer, very different. This thing is trying to kill you, it's trying to take over your body, and the pain is not necessarily normal. It's, it's part of the fall, it's part of a broken world. Maybe the, 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 the feeling you get when you hear an alarm go off somewhere, fire alarm or something or, or a, an air raid siren and you're thinking, what's going on? And then you find out it's just a test. It's okay. Everything's okay. There's great comfort to be had in tribulation. You know, there's really no avoiding trouble in this life. Didn't Jesus tell us? <laughs> you're going to have trouble in this life. You're going to have tribulate, tribulation, right? You're going to have tribulation in this life. The question is, how do we overcome that tribulation? The question is, how do we find peace instead of panic, when we are going through struggles. This is Jesus' intention in the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, his intention was to let the guys know, let his guys know, that what they were about to go through, which was going to be very intense, was normal. That it was okay, that it was part of the plan, that, that really um, what, what they were about to experience wasn't an accident, it wasn't a surprise. He didn't want them to be surprised. He wanted them to be assured. He wanted them to be confident and know that everything they were facing was part of God's providential, overarching, sovereign plan in the midst of trouble. And so these are Jesus' last words. We're reaching the end of the book of Mark. We've been studying through it for some time now. We're reaching the end of the book of Mark, and we're reaching Jesus' final words to his disciples. He's about to go onto the cross in a matter of hours here, and Jesus takes the time to have a, a discussion with his boys about the nature of the end, the nature of their end, and the nature of potentially our end, the nature of the world's end, really, so Jesus is going to take time to unpack. The question is, how does Jesus prepare his disciples to go through tribulation, to go through trouble? The word tribulation just really means trouble. Okay, how does he prepare them to go through tribulation? I love John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. <laughs> Christians that don't know how to suffer. Christians that don't know how to go through tribulation. See, there's this wrong theology out there that God's will is never that we would go through hard things, right? That God's will would always be that we would have health and wealth and prosperity. But in reality, much of what the New Testament and much of Jesus was trying to prepare the disciples for was to suffer, to struggle, to go through tribulation, to face trouble. So how did Jesus prepare his guys to have a, a, a robust understanding of tribulation and struggle. So the title of this message is How to Be in Trouble, okay? And that's kind of a double 
meaning there, how to be when you're in trouble, when you're going through trouble, how to be in trouble. We're going to see how Jesus walks us through that. Jesus is preparing uh, through an honest portrayal of precipitous events of what is going to happen in these guys' lifetime and beyond. Now, our our assignment, the passage is Mark chapter 13, um, which I've been kind of excited and kind of trepidatious about as we get closer and closer to it. It's uh, often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Have you guys heard of that language before? Uh, It comes up in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, if you want to read more on your own later. And Mark's account here is all of chapter 23. The Olivet Discourse is what we're going to look at this morning. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus' apocalyptic vision of the future events that are coming. It's Jesus' longest response to a question that he ever gives. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like this matters. It's almost like the material we're going to engage this morning is important. It has, um, it has significance, right, in our lives. This is one of Jesus' longest teachings, one of his longest discourses that he has. And Matthew's gospel really takes up two whole chapters of Jesus teaching on these things. And also, I'll mention, it's one of the most difficult to interpret passages in the Bible, <laughs> I spent a little extra time this week digging into this passage. It is highly debated. Christians have spilled a lot of ink and a lot of paper on commentaries arguing about how to interpret the Olivet Discourse, as is true of most biblical prophecy, right? So we're going to handle it carefully. We're going to handle it hermeneutically responsibly, which hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, and we're going to hopefully deploy accurate hermeneutics this morning, and it might feel a little bit more knowledge-heavy this morning, a little less sermon, and and I'm not going to apologize for that because we should be Bible students, right? We should understand God's Word, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time really digging into the nature of this discourse that Jesus gives. Now, what makes this passage so difficult? Why is it so tricky to interpret? Well, it's, it's not hard to explain. The reason this is difficult is because it's not if these events will happen. It is if these events have already happened and to what degree. It's not if these events have relevance. It's to what generation did these events that we're reading about here have relevance. That's the debate that scholars and Christians sort of argue about. So let me just take seven and a half minutes and sort of frame for you, hopefully, uh, the debate that Christians have argued about when it comes to this passage and really uh, the whole book of Revelation uh, in, in addition to that. There's different ways that you can look at future prophecy in the Bible. There's, uh, I'll just boil it down into four different positions that you can take. If you want to jot them down, you can study them more on your own. Uh, And hopefully this will help us as we kind of work our way through this passage to understand how different scholars look at this uh, at different times. The first position is the preterist approach, not predatorist. That's a a movie from the 90s about an alien. Remember that, that thing? Okay. Not predatorist. Preterist approach. Um, More specifically, uh, partial preterism would be the technical term for it. This position comes from the Latin Latin prefix praetor, which simply means, and this is important, simply means uh, past or beyond, meaning that the events that we just read about have already passed. 
They would have been future, according to this position, they would have been future to the early church that heard them, but they are now past to us living in 2022. Uh, they believe that most of the events that we read about here in the Olivet Discourse and most of the events of Revelation, chapter 1 through 19, were referring to a particular period of church history in the first century. Okay, uh, now some of you may never have heard of that before. If you were raised in a Baptistic or Calvary Chapel or Charismatic or really mainstream evangelicalism, you've probably never heard that there are quite a few Christians that actually believe that a lot of this was fulfilled in the first century, not in the future. There are a lot of Christians out there, and I say Christians, Christians that believe the rapture isn't gonna happen, that believe the tribulation already happened. And that believe the millennium, if you're an eschatology student, um, is figurative for the church. And this, these people are called preterists. So they would take a passage like we look at today, and they would say, this was referring to specific events that happened in mostly 70 AD, the persecution that happened to the church. They take a very wooden interpretation of the verse uh, 30 of chapter 13 that says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They would see that as Jesus is saying, hey, everything's going to happen before you guys are dead, speaking to that generation that he was preaching to, okay? Now, that's one approach. That is not my approach. It's not my position, but I respect it. You'd be surprised how many people hold to this, okay? All of our Reformed brothers and sisters and, and Presbyterian churches, uh, most of the church history actually believed this. Jonathan Edwards, you name it. Most of the Reformers held to this position um, on their eschatology, which is in times. The second approach is the idealist approach. The idealist approach. And, and this approach basically says that uh, these things like the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, they're not to be taken too literally. They are basically big ideas of cosmic realities that are being communicated through imagery and poetry. So we ought not get too deep into the details. We ought to let the big picture sort of inform us. Now, uh, there are people that we love and respect that hold to that view. Tim Mackey, who does the Bible Project, he is an idealist in his eschatology. He doesn't see it as being a foretelling of, of literal events as much as it is the big idea idea of God's cosmic redemptive victory over evil, okay? The third approach is probably the one that you're most familiar with. If you grew up in Calvary Chapel or a Baptist church or mainstream evangelicalism, and that is the futurist approach. And that sees the Olivet Discourse, everything we read, it sees it as all being future, still hasn't taken place. Are you with me? Futurist, makes sense, okay? Hasn't taken place yet. They see the Olivet Discourse as Jesus having uh, recorded for future the terminal generation, which would be the last generation that lives when Jesus returns, writing down these events. They see a literal seven-year tribulation. Anybody ever seen the Left Behind, Left Behind series? Any of you guys? Okay, Left Behind series. Uh, this is really what made this popular. It was really a minority position and then uh, became a majority position through the Scofield Reference Bible and the Left Behind series. And, and, and really now most Christians, at least in the West, um, in the mainstream, hold to this view. Okay, so there's a literal seven-year tribulation to come. There's a literal antichrist who is ready to take the stage and take the scene. There's a literal millennium, which we read about in Revelation chapter 20, this thousand-year reign where Jesus will literally be here physically ruling and reigning. They see a literal rebuild of the temple and a literal millennial temple. They see future fulfillment of the, the, national, uh, the nationalistic land promises of God to Israel, that Israel, when the church is raptured out, is, Israel will be restored into their geographical location. They take all of these things to be future, ultimately, in fulfillment. 
okay? Uh, that's the futurist approach. Now, there's a, fourth, there's a fourth approach, and this is the approach that I would hold to, okay? Uh, and and this, this is, I'm not alone on this. I'm not out on a limb on this. Most scholars today outside of the tribal worlds would, would see this as probably being more likely of how we interpret Because here's the problem, okay? Here's the problem. Will you read what we just read and what we're going to walk through here in a minute, and you go, wow, that does sound like it happened in 70 AD. Wow, it, it does sound like that's referring to events that already happened. But then you look at it, you're like, but that can't have been, that can't have happened in the first century completely. It almost seems like it happened and it's going to happen again. And that's exactly the position that I take. It's called dual fulfillment, okay? It's called dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment looks like this. Have you ever seen a mountain range before? So let's just say you're in Medford and you're looking off to the south and, and, and to the south you see uh, Pilot Rock and you see Mount Ashland. And if you're up high enough, you'll see Mount Shasta popping up over the top. And from the vantage point of um, your perspective, it looks like it's all one mountain range, doesn't it? Mount Shasta, Pilot Rock, Mount Ashland, all one mountain range. And it looks like they're all about the same height, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, because these are closer and that one's farther away. And because you're so far away, it looks like they're all one event. So what I believe is that the same thing is true here. Jesus is telling his guys, his, his four disciples here that we'll see, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he's telling them about these events, and they appear to be uh, in their own lifetime, but they also seem to appear to be something in the future. And so what looks like one mountain range is actually two mountain ranges. Uh, and in case you think I'm, I'm crazy, let me give you a few examples of what this looks like in the Old Testament. This is exactly how the prophets spoke. The prophets, when they talked about Jesus' coming, they talked about two different, it seems like two different characters. They talked about the suffering servant, and they talked about the reigning king. And Old Testament scholars would go, this must be two different guys. There must be a Messiah who's going to come suffer, and a Messiah who's going to come conquer. Okay, now, now that we're sitting where we're sitting, what do we know? Same Messiah, two events. First advent, second advent. He came once as the suffering servant. He's coming again as the reigning king. Are you guys with me? It looks like one event, but in reality, it's uh, two events that are foretold without all of the, the specific details. So what we're going to look at here, I believe, is giving some information to the generation that it was spoken to, and it has information for us today, and information for what is referred to as the terminal generation, the generation that will be here when Christ comes. And I believe there will be a literal rapture, a literal tribulation, a literal millennium. Uh, but I also believe some of these things have been fulfilled. Uh, have I lost you? Are you guys with me? Are you good? Okay. All right. Sweet. Here, let me just read one quote here by a scholar that agrees with my position. Really, I agree with his position because he's way smarter. Okay. Uh, he says, the conditions associated with the impending local crisis of Jerusalem, fall, uh, Jerusalem's fall, foreshadow those connected with the worldview end times, or worldwide end times. Listen, thus Jesus' words that we're going to read are relevant to his first disciples, and they remain so for all disciples who face similar conditions throughout the age. So let me just say one more thing before we dive into the text. It's important as we study the Bible that we ask this question, what, not just what does this mean to me, what does this mean? And what did it mean to the original audience? See, the Bible was written to an original audience and it has relevance for us. It speaks truth to us, but good interpretation starts with what was this written for and who was it written to? Jesus' words here were to the disciples, 
Yes, they have relevance for us. So we need to ask the question, how does this both have relevance for the disciples who heard it and for you and I who are sitting here in 2022, 2022 years later, well, actually more like 1900 and whatever, uh, after Christ went to the Father. Are you with me? Okay, uh, here's the thing. Quick note too, by the way, Christians don't all agree on stuff. Did you know that? Get over it. It's okay. It's okay. We don't all have to agree. There are certain things we have to agree on. Uh, Gary Brashear is up at Western Seminary. He puts it like this. He says, there's four, there's four Ds when it comes to, 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 to what we get along or don't get along on. The first D are the things that we die for. What are things we die for? Well, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, okay? Uh, faith alone, grace alone, sola scriptus. These are die for. Like, you're going to the stake for these things, okay? Someone says, deny that, you say, burn me. Okay, that's, what, that's those kind of things. We don't, we don't uh, really need to argue. But so, some, so Mormon walks up to me and he says, you know, hey, you and I are Christians. I say, no, we're not. We're not both the same thing, you know, and I will dive over that position because they, they worship a different Jesus. The second category are things that we divide over. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean we're not Christians, but it just means that we really can't yoke together. Okay, I, I, I'm, there's, there's Christian brothers and sisters that I love, and I think that we'll be in heaven together, but I'm not gonna go work at their church. The third category are things that we debate over, okay? This lives in that area. The things we debate over, but we don't need to divide over them. We don't need to say, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm pounding sand because you don't hold to my pre-tribulation futurist pre-millennial rapture uh, or pre-millennial kingdom position, okay? So don't do that. Like, that's stupid. Just don't do that. Another thing that lives in this, and you might disagree with me, another thing that lives in this category is Calvinism and Arminianism. Don't leave your church because they don't talk about Calvinism enough or vice versa, okay? Just debate over it. Have a good conversation and then shut up. Okay, number four. <laughs> and the fourth, the fourth category is uh, decide for and then literally just don't talk about it. You don't like the carpet color? Nobody cares, okay? You don't like the music choice? Shh, doesn't matter. Don't worry about it, okay? So there's things we die for. There's things that we divide for. There's things we debate about. And then there's the things we just don't talk about at all because they don't matter. Okay. So having said that, that's my introduction. And now let's move in to the material. The point of this passage this morning, let me make this very clear. The point of this passage is that we would be ready for the return of the Lord. Amen? That we would be ready for the return of the Lord. Now let's, let's dive into it and see what Jesus has to say to his boys. Verse 1, chapter 13. We're going to only cover the first half of the Olivet Discourse this morning because it's very long and very technical. So we're going to work through 23 verses of it and then we'll finish the rest next week. I would encourage you, if at all possible, to come back next week and get the whole thing, okay? Uh, because it's all really important. So here's where the text starts. Verse 1. As he came out of the temple, that is Jesus, it's Wednesday evening, most likely. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples, doesn't say who, said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. So here's what's happening. They've spent their day ministering. If you remember, Jesus has been getting antagonized by every single leader in the Sanhedrin all day long. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've all tried to, 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 um, to basically derail him. None of them were successful. After a long day, Jesus and his boys are walking out the eastern gate and into the Kidron Valley. And in the Kidron Valley, as you're walking up the Mount of Olives, you would look behind you and you would see what was really a majestic perspective, a majestic view, and that was the temple. I can't really, I can't really explain to you guys with, with enough, um, probably enough energy, how immaculate Herod's temple was. 
okay? If you remember your history, Solomon made the temple. It got destroyed by the Babylonians. Herod came in, and for his own glory, really, he came in and he basically doubled the size of it. It was a 50-year, it had been in construction for 50 years when the disciples are taking this moment to just sort of revel in the size of it. Okay, this is a massive structure. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. The courtyard, just the courtyard, not the temple, but just the courtyard, rose 170 feet above the Kidron Valley. And so these guys are probably down here looking up at this thing, and it's just massive. It's just massive. The, the foundation stones of the temple, you can see them today when you go to Israel. You go underground and you look at them. They're 14 feet long, and it's one stone, 14 feet wide. Think school bus. They literally are not even sure how they got those babies in there, okay? This thing was huge. It was overlaid in gold, and it was overlaid in votive offerings. And when the sun, Josephus would tell us, when the sun would beam down, it would glare off of it. It would almost be blinding. This thing was massive. It was the biggest temple in the ancient world, and the disciples are very impressed with it. Okay, they're very impressed with it. And why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? The temple is everything they've known, really, in their life. It's the centerpiece of the Jewish religion. Um, It is the place where they know they can go and connect with God and offer give offerings and, and have sort of this, this moment with the Lord. So they pointed out to Jesus, and they're probably assuming, by the way, that Jesus has plans for this temple. He's the Messiah. He's come to take over the world. He's come to establish the nationalistic superpower of Israel once again. So surely the temple is going to be the base of operations. So they're thinking, Jesus, isn't this thing great? Isn't it awesome that we're going to have it now? Isn't it awesome that you're going to take it over? That's really what they're probably thinking here. Now notice what Jesus says. He sees a very teachable moment here. Jesus said to them, verse two, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this would have hit them, pardon the pun, this would have hit them like a ton of bricks. Come on, that was, that was good. I just thought of that. I mean, I just thought of it. Okay. Um, ton of bricks. Okay. Anyways, uh, this would have really messed with them. I mean, the temple was their centerpiece. Like, the, the idea that Jesus was going to, that the temple was going to be destroyed is, is completely confusing. Here's the thing. The temple was destroyed before when Israel was in rebellion and when Babylon came in and kicked them out. So Messiah's here and the temple's going to get destroyed? That just doesn't seem to make sense to them. But this, this prediction that Jesus made happened. Listen, this is very uh, undebatable, okay? This prediction happened. It happened in 70 AD, if you know your history. It happened when the Romans uh, sent a general, Titus, who was fed up with the Jews and their insurrections. The Jews were known for their insurrections. They're famous for their rebellions. Okay? They got sick of it. They're over it. Actually, 67 AD, they come in and they, they, they surrounded Jerusalem and they laid waste to the city. It was one of the most brutal and bloody and savage wars that history has recorded, and they disassembled and burned the temple to the ground, so much so that historians today don't actually know where the temple really was on the mount. We know where the mount was, because we can, we can see the corner of it, but we don't know where the temple was, because it was that destroyed. Guys, Jesus got it right. Can we just... Let that hit you for a minute. He got it right, and nobody can really argue that. The temple was destroyed exactly 
like Jesus said. Now, this destruction of the temple creates the backdrop for the conversation that we're going to have, or that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. So, as they're walking up the Mount of Olives, verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. This is a place where there's a great view of the temple. The Mount of Olives sits about 150 feet above the temple mount, so they can see this thing gleaming in the, the setting sun. And in this moment, Peter and James and John and Andrew... Okay, two sets of brothers, Peter, James, John, Andrew. Ask him privately. This is a private conversation. Verse four, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Wouldn't you ask that too? <laughs> Jesus just said the temple's gonna get annihilated. Wouldn't you be like, uh, excuse me, rabbi, um, yeah, when? When is that gonna happen? What, what's gonna be the sign? Like, how are we gonna know when, when this is gonna happen? That's the same question I would be asking, okay? And these four guys are, are very curious about this. Now, in Mark's gospel, it seems as though the question they're asking is just related to the temple. However, if you look at Matthew's gospel, which is a parallel account, we find out that there's more to this question than is here in Mark. Let me read you Mar uh, Matthew's parallel account. In Matthew 24, 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So we find that actually they have three questions. When is this temple thing gonna happen? When are you coming back? Which means they finally got it through their thick heads that he was leaving, <laughs> okay? Uh, and also, when is the end of the age? In other words, when is the end of this this world that we've been living in because Jesus had been teaching about this eschaton, this future end of the age that was coming and, and they wanna know when all this stuff's gonna happen. Now, the reason I point that out is because it makes more sense when you read the Olivet Discourse in Mark. Jesus is answering a lot of questions but these guys think all these things are gonna happen at the same time. Remember the mountain range? They think the temple's gonna get destroyed, Jesus is gonna come back and the end of the age is all gonna happen at once. But we now know, okay, it doesn't all happen at once. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The church is still waiting. Jesus still has not come back. The end of the age has not come. We are still in the end times. It's been the end times. Okay, it has been the last days. So it's a key in understanding what question Jesus is really answering here. He's answering a few different questions. He's answering what's gonna happen to the temple, when he's gonna come back, and when the end of the age is. Verse five. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, I want to point out a word here. It's a very important word to this passage. It's the word see. Do you see it? See? See in verse 5? See, it's the Greek word blepite. Okay, blepite. This is a key word of this passage. It comes up four times in this chapter, and it's, it's an imperative. It's Jesus calling these guys to see with very precise accuracy. Uh, the other words that can be translated as is understand, think about, cause to happen, face toward perceive, or the way it's translated in the rest of the chapter, listen, be on guard. Be on guard. And I point that out because I want you to understand that the point and the nature of Jesus giving this teaching is not so we can sit there on Fox News trying to figure out when the rapture is going to happen. Now, if that's your thing, that's fine. Maybe. Uh, the point of this passage is that we would be busy, that we would be aware, and know that he is coming. But Jesus makes it very clear, and he will make it very clear, that we don't know when he's coming. We are to be ready. Okay, we are to be ready. We are to understand. This word's gonna come up throughout the passage. You'll see. Jesus isn't giving us a secret cipher. Okay? You remember uh, Christmas story? 
when uh, Ralphie comes home and he gets his decoder pen. And he's so stoked, you know, he thinks he's going to get this secret message. And it's, don't forget to drink your Ovaltine, okay? <laughs> oh, what a joke. Crummy commercial, right? So this is not, like, this is not, um, this is not the Da Vinci Code. Let's dig into here and let's figure out the numerology and let's put all this stuff together and figure out who's what. And then we can know. You know how many, you know how many, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a kind word. Um, you know how many, I don't have one. Um, you know how many whack jobs have written books about when Jesus is going to come back? You know where those books are now? They're in that one bookstore you don't go to because you don't like it. Nobody, nobody buys those books. Jesus is coming back in 1988. Jesus is coming back in 1999. Jesus is coming back in. Jesus is coming back. Don't, don't do that. That's not the point, right? The point is that we would be ready. The point is that we would be listening, that we would see. So Jesus says in verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So here we, fee- we see the first threat to the church that's going to come. The first threat to the church is the church, or those, I should say, within the church that are false prophets. He's saying many are going to come, not occasionally, it says many will come in my name, saying and claiming that they are going to be the Messiah, and they're going to be pretty effective. It says they're going to lead people astray. Now, this happened in the, in the, in the day of these guys, AD 66. Uh, a man named uh, Theodos uh, said he was the Messiah. He claimed that he could part the Jordan River, and it was part of the, the precipitating uh, events that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So, so all kinds of people popped up saying, I'm Jesus. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming. People said it in those days, and people are saying it in these days. It's still common. The Jesus Christ that is worshipped by Islam is a false Jesus, the Jesus Christ that is worshipped by Jehovah's Witnesses and by Mormons and by postmodernism, is a false Jesus, false Messiah. Okay, I know the Mormons—they're they, dressed nice and they're very kind. You should be nice to them. Okay, uh, they—they're forced in their religion to try to get into heaven by riding a bike and, and dressing not very well. Okay, uh, so be nice to them, but they worship a false Jesus. Okay, a false. Jesus, it's, 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 it's wrong. Now, here's the reality. The greatest threats to the church are always inside the church. Most of the New Testament is written about false doctrine. Okay, so, so you may hate Oregon and the politics, and you may hate this, and you may hate that. You may hate Russia. You may hate this and China, whatever. They're not the biggest threat to the church. In fact, persecution actually makes the church grow. The biggest threat to the church is false doctrine, which is why we study the Bible, which is why we are students the word, Jesus says, nothing is going to change. There's going to be people that are going to come into the church and they're going to feed you this phony, baloney, false idea of who I am. Okay, now verse seven. When you hear of wars, have you heard of any lately? Okay. And you hear of rumors of wars. Have you heard of any rumors of wars lately? Yeah, I have. I keep hearing the World War III thing just thrown out like all the time, right? My poor son, he's like, are we going to have a World War III? I'm like, it's okay, buddy. You know, calm down. Um, he says, do not be alarmed. Don't be surprised. This, note the word, must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Okay? What's Jesus' point here? Well, first of all, notice Jesus is very pessimistic here. He's like, look, it's not going to get better. Okay, and this is why as Christians, we care about the world we live in. We care about the least and the last and the lost. But we, but we don't try to get too involved in social reform and politics because unless you're a post-millennialist, which you can Google that later, uh, we don't see the world getting better. Okay, the world is bad. 
it's going to continue to be bad. People are going to continue to kill each other. People are going to continue to shoot each other. Wars are going to continue to happen. That's not going to change on a macro level until Jesus comes back. That doesn't mean that we don't try to do things in this world now to mitigate that. Um, God is a God of, of, of restraining evil, and we have a right to do that. We have a, a call to do that. However, we need to understand that wars are going to continue. Rumors of wars are going to continue. These are, according to Jesus, these are birth pains. They're birth pains. Okay, they're Braxton Hicks. Any of you guys know what that is? Braxton Hicks? Braxton Hicks. It's not the actual contractions. It's the like, you know, until I've had a few kids with, yeah, my wife's had a few kids. I was just there. I had a part to play. Um, they're like these false labor pains. He's like, there's going to be false labor pains, but don't get distracted by them. Don't get worried about them, okay? And ironically here, eschatologists, those that spend all their time trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back, they look into every war and they flip over every rock and they listen to every news article trying to figure out who this is and who Gog is and what that place is and who Russia is and blah, blah, blah. And ironically, they're doing the very thing Jesus said not to do, which was don't get so distracted. There's going to be wars. There's going to be nation rising against nation. There's going to be stuff happening, but at the end of the day, we aren't to get caught up in this. We're not to get distracted in this. Verse 9, be on your guard. There's that word again, blepete. Be on your guard. The first blepete was about not being distracted. The second was about, or it is about, will be about not being discouraged, okay? Jesus not only wants these guys to not be distracted, he wants them to not be discouraged. So he says in verse nine, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings. What an encouraging sermon for these guys. For my sake, he says, to bear witness before them and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. What you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and the children will arise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, this world is incompatible with ours, right? It's incompatible. You will be hated. You will be hated by this world. It's going to happen. It's going to happen at every level. It's going to happen at your family. It's going to happen to the government. It's going to happen in your communities. You will be hated. Councils, kings, governors, religions, where are they beaten up? They're beaten in the synagogues. The biggest enemy of Christians in the first century was Judaism, the Jews, rejected Christianity, they beat them in their synagogues. Just read the book of Acts. All this stuff happened and has continued to happen throughout history in Christianity, okay? Happens over and over again. Your family will reject you. Notice how much good news is here, though. We see persecution also leads to evangelization, doesn't it? Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When Christians are persecuted, the gospel goes out, the, the Christians would have probably all stayed in Jerusalem and had their big mega church. They would have got all the cool sound system and all the cool building and all that kind of stuff, except persecution forced them to scatter all throughout the Roman world. So, now that's not because God is anti-mega church. It's just that God knew they would have all stayed there. They would have had their apostles, their, their mega pastors. Everything would have been great. And God's like, nope, I want you scattered throughout the Roman world. I want the gospel to go out. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. Okay? They were scattered, scattered the diaspora. They were scattered all throughout the ancient world. Um, so their good news is here. Persecution always leads to evangelization. Uh, public trials lead to public confession. 
Paul the Apostle, who really lived this in the book of Acts, I'd encourage you to read that as homework this week. The book of Acts, Paul the Apostle was sent from leader to leader, before king, before king to king, and council to council. And every time, you know what he did? He preached the gospel. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Philippians, when Paul says, greetings from Caesar's house. I love that. Your brothers and sisters greet you. That means that people in the house of Caesar were getting saved because Paul's persecution led to evangelization. His persecution led to the sharing of the gospel. It's incredible. He says, the good news, anxious and unprepared moments lead to spirit-filled speeches. They lead to spirit-filled speeches. Remember Stephen? Cast before the council, ready to be stoned. The Holy Spirit comes over him and he speaks the gospel powerfully. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8 or 6. I think it's 8. So, we've so, so far, we've seen all that does not signal the tribulation. Are you with me? Focus. All that, all that does not signal the tribulation, all the things that are distractions, now Jesus is saying, here's what you can look for that will signal the tribulation. Here are the things that will signal the tribulation. This person named the abomination of desolation. Let's talk about him. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what is all this about? What is Jesus talking about here? Who is the abomination of desolation and who, why are they supposed to work or why are they supposed to look for him? Well, just in short here, the abomination of desolation uh, to us sounds like a strange and, and, and odd word, but to them, they would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. This figure, this abomination of desolation, he's referred to in the book of Daniel multiple times. It's this person, this prince, who is to rise up and will bring an abomination that will lead to some kind of desolation. I think this was partly fulfilled in 168 BC by a figure named Antiochus Epiphanes who stormed into the temple and made an altar to Zeus and slaughtered pigs on that altar and it brought desolation and abomination. And Jesus is using this title that would have been commonplace to them and he's saying there's gonna be a figure like this guy who's gonna raise up in the last times. I think a typical, uh, another type of that rose up in the first century. Uh, we saw when the temple was destroyed, Caesar Nero, the persecution that took place very much, I think, was partly typified. It was a dress rehearsal, if you will, in the first century. But there is another figure, the spirit of Antichrist, that will manifest himself in this person. And I think that's the best way to interpret this abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when this guy pops up, watch out. And what are you to do? You're to flee to the mountains. I love that verse. I love the mountains. John, Sled, you like the mountains, right? Let's just move to the mountains, right? Let's take scripture literally, right? We'll just be literists. No, literalists. No, it's not what it's saying. Jesus here is signaling to the Jews that when, he says in Matthew's account, when Jerusalem is surrounded, get out of town. Get out of town. Now, check this out. This is a fun fact. When Jerusalem was surrounded by Rome, you know what happened? The Christians left Jerusalem. How did they know how to do that? Because of this passage. They knew to leave. They escaped one of the worst bloody massacres in history because they listened to Jesus, because they were blepite, they were aware, they were seeing, and God spared them from that. Isn't that cool? Isn't history amazing? I mean, it's crazy. God, like prophecy is crazy. God fulfills these things. So verse 15, let the one who was on the housetop not go down. Most people spent their time on the rooftops in those days. It was hot inside. Nor enter his house to take anything out. Don't pack a bag, just go. 
Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. In winter time, the, 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 the streams and the rivers would swell to the point where you couldn't escape that point. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation has not, has not been from the beginning of creation and that God created until now never will be. Now that's where the first century fulfillment of this kind of breaks down. <laughs> we still haven't seen a, a, a tribulation of these proportions. We're still waiting, I think, for that personally. Okay, So, 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. In other words, without divine intervention, there would be no salvation for those physically there at the time. And 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. I love that verse. Isn't it great? To lead astray, if possible, the elect. What does that mean? It's not possible. You know, every once in a while as a pastor, I get this question. Hey, could I, get, could I accidentally get the mark of the beast? It's one of these we always freak out about, you know, like, like we're talking about chips in our phones and facial recognition and everybody's kind of worried, like, man, am I going to accidentally, um, are you a Christian? The answer is no. Okay, no. Why? Why will you not accidentally get the mark of the beast? Because God's mark is already on you. It's called the Holy Spirit. Ephesians makes it clear. You are sealed with the spirit, the signet of God's mark. You're his. You are protected. Now, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to have to go through tribulation. Okay? I like the pre-trib pre rapture idea. That sounds great. Okay? Doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> we'll see, right? If it's not, then I'll be a mid-tribber, and if it's not a mid-tribber, I'll be a post-tribber. Okay, whatever. We'll see what happens. It's not uncommon for God to allow his elect to go through tribulation, but mark my words, mark God's words, he preserves you in and through that tribulation. He does. He does. Things are going to get crazy. God is in and through this tribulation. Okay, so in the last days, people are going to raise up, and they're going to lead people astray. There's going to, you know, every time there's tribulation, it's a, it's a vacuum for false religions. Someone comes up and says, I have the answer. I have the way. And people are going to follow them. And here in verse 21, they're going to, they're going to manifest power. They're going to show power, and people are going to be drawn away into that. It's going to all happen in, in the end. Now, now, we don't know exactly how or when or what, but we know that Jesus wants these guys to be tuned into these kinds of things. Now, Jesus ends this section of his discourse right where he started, which is with another use of the word blepite, which is to see or be on guard. Look at verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Here's the good news. He says to his guys, hey, look, it's going to look like you're losing. Can we be honest? Like, if Jesus hadn't said all this stuff, read the book of Acts, Christians would be like, wow, we lost. I mean, these guys are getting beat up. They're getting crucified. All of the disciples were martyred. I mean, it's, it's like, these guys would have been like, wow, we really failed. Well, Jesus must have really not been who he said he was, except for this one fact. Jesus said all these things would happen. He prepared them for tribulation. He says, look, remember what I said in my introduction? As long as you know that what you're going through is normal and that it's useful, you have peace instead of panic, right? 
So we, we, we know tribulation's going to come. We know persecution's going to come. We know things are going to get hard. We know there's going to be wars. We know there's going to be famines. We know there's going to be pestilence. We know there's going to be false prophets. We know there's going to be the spirit of Antichrist continuing to crop, crop up over and over again. I just said a bad word. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and and we, we keep our eyes on the horizon, okay? Now, some of you are like, Sam, this is, like a, this is a lecture. Okay, let me get to some practical. Let me get to some practical here. Just three keys to tribulate well, okay? Three keys to get through trouble. That is a real word, by the way. I looked it up, and you can tribulate. It's a thing. Okay. You can tribulate. How to tribulate well. Number one, let me write these down, okay? They're extremely short and practical. Number one, don't grab anything that moves. Don't grab anything. You ever, you ever been in your house, and maybe you just get a little dizzy or something, and you, you start to kind of fall? Maybe I'm the only one. And you reach out to grab whatever you can grab, and the thing that you grab didn't grab you. <laughs> like, whoop, oops, okay, that was the wrong thing to grab, you know? Down you go, right? Don't, don't do that. Don't grab something that moves. Let me give you another example. When, when you're uh, on a boat, I get very seasick. One time I went deep sea fishing, and uh, I, was, I was catching a fish, and I had to stop and throw up like multiple times, and there was a shark swimming under me while I was throwing. It was the craziest thing. I was trying to tell the guys, like, there's a shark over here. Um, I couldn't handle it. As soon as I stopped, started fishing, I started throwing up. Why? Because I took my eyes off the what? Off the horizon. Why, why does the horizon keep you from getting sick? Because it doesn't move. The boat is going like this, you know, whoa, pitching and tossing. The, the horizon stays the same. Okay, you ever driving in a car? I used to get car sick a lot when I was a kid, and I found the trick to not getting car sick. You drive the car. No, um, it's, it's true, actually. No, why do you not get car sick when you're driving the car? Because you're looking where the curves are, and you're following the curves instead of texting on your phone, right, or reading a book. So you're, you're following the curves. Now, what Jesus is trying to do here with these guys, he's trying to get them to look at what doesn't move. He's saying there's going to be curves, there's going to be pitching and tossing, there's going to be tribulation and trouble and falling and hurting and struggle, but you can get through it because I've told you what's going to happen. You have your eye on the shore. You have your eye on the horizon. Jesus wants these guys to anticipate the turns. He wants these guys to know things are going to get hard so they can prepare for it. This is so important. It's so key. We need to hold on to something, and we need to not hold on to conservative politics. We need to not hold on to our family. We need to not hold on too tightly to our freeze-dried meals and our generators and our gasoline that we have in the, 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 the garage, right? We need to not hold on too, too hard to this hope that maybe we'll have political change or, or hold on too hard, and maybe uh, this and that's going to happen. No, Jesus is like, hold on to the gospel, Hold on to that. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. It doesn't, you know, when, the, when, the, when things crumble, you want to be holding on to the one thing that doesn't crumble. Everything in this world is going to crumble. It is. It has to. It's in a state of fallen wrath. It's, it's dying. Your body is dying. Your career is dying. Everything is dying. The gospel is about regeneration. The new genesis of life that lives within you now because of Christ. Look at that. Look at it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, we don't uh, watch the news. It doesn't mean that we don't try to, try to you know, um, take care of ourselves and take care of this world to the best degree we can. But let me just say this. I think a lot of Christians, they get so tuned into the end times thing that they become cynical. And I, and I don't think we should become cynical. I don't think we should be logic, theologically cynical, and I don't think we should be such realists 
that, that we don't bring hope into these things. You know, we, we watch these things happen in the news. We watch these things happen in the world. And it's easy to go, well, pff, duh, the world's fallen. But as a Christian, what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be the ambassadors, not of optimism. Optimism's good for basically nothing. I don't care about optimism. I care about hope. You know what hope is? Christian hope? It's not feeling good or hoping things work out. Christian hope is being anchored to the absolute assurance of God's word and that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. That's what we anchor ourselves to. We don't need to be cynical. We need to bring the gospel into these situations. Man, guys, there's stuff happening in the world right now that people are going to ask you about as a Christian. What is going on? And you don't need to be like, well, yeah, people are terrible. I mean, you could say that. Tell them people are terrible and then tell them who's good. Tell them what God's doing. Tell them how God is going to judge all sin and evil in this world. Tell them how Jesus is coming back exactly for this reason. Because if he didn't come back, we'd kill each other for the end, until the end of time. Evil would perpetuate. Tell them Jesus is coming back. He's the righteous judge. Tell them that Jesus came in order to rescue us out of this fallen and broken world. We need gospel triumphalism. We should be the most hopeful people in the world. Not because we're hoping that the world might change, but because we know it will. <laughs> we know it will. Amen, Heidi. Love it. <laughs> number two. Number one is don't grab anything that moves. Number two, don't forget birth pains are work pains. Birth pains are work pains. When my wife was going through labor, you know, it's like, what do you say? <laughs> it's like going through the worst pain of your life. Um, actually, kind of funny story. When we had our first kid, we did it at this birthing center, and, and the, the ladies were like made, made us food. Well, my wife's like the sickest she's ever been in her life. She's like going through contractions. She doesn't want to eat. So they make me this omelet. And I'm like dumb enough to sit there and eat it in front of my wife, like, like an idiot, you know? Like you don't do that, right? And she was like, couldn't even talk at the time. But later on, she's like, I can't believe you ate that omelet in front of me. I was so mad at you. I'm like, oh, sorry, it was really good. And I was hungry. I told her, you know, I needed energy. I had to put my oxygen mask on first, right? Like I needed energy so I could be there for you. That didn't go over, huh? No. Anyways, so, so I found this encouraging thing with my wife when she was going through labor. And notice Jesus uses this idea of labor, by the way. Okay, I'm not inserting that. Jesus says this is like labor pains. Okay, um, I found this encouraging thing. And it was to tell her that every contraction wasn't just pain for the sake of pain. It's work. Good job. Good work. Good work. You're doing it. You're closer. You're closer. Every contraction is getting closer to this life being delivered into this world. This is how we should think about tribulation. Okay? It's not something to be avoided. It's not something to be invited. It's not something to be uh, wasted. God doesn't waste your tribulation. He uses it. He uses it to refine you. He uses it to purify you. He uses it to, to take away the impurities. Your faith is like gold. It needs to be superheated in order to be purified. Right? It's what Peter tells the, the suffering church that he writes to in, in Asia Minor. Okay? We see God's hand in tribulation. We see his hand, we see it as a mechanism for sanctification. Okay? To deny Christian tribulation is to not be prepared for it, and that will lead to failure within it. Remember my John Piper quote, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. Okay? If you have a theology, like a certain someone, I won't say whose name is, if you have a certain theology uh, that certain pastors have these days that, that do not believe that there is any theology that could that allow for human suffering, you better read another Bible. God will allow tribulation in your life, and he will use that tribulation in your life, and listen, he'll be in that tribulation. You notice 
God didn't keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace. He put them in the furnace, and then what did he do? He went in there with them. God may not always keep you out of tribulation, but he will always listen. He will always be in that tribulation with them. And that's why Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles, but over, I have overcome the world. He says, I'll be with you, even unto the end of the age. He's with us in our struggles. Suffering and tribulation invites us into this community, the community of Christ's suffering. It's a beautiful reality. To quote my friend Trevor Hanks back there, Christians can run through the flames because Jesus is our example and because Jesus did it for us. We can run through the flames and not be burned. The Spirit of God is going to equip us. Number three, remember you will have what you need when you need it. This is my third point. You will have what you need when you need it. You know, I tell new dads a lot when they first uh, find out their wife's pregnant or whatever, they go, oh man, I don't know if I can do it. What if I'm a bad dad? I say, you'll never be a dad until you hold your kid. And everything that you need is in there. All of the components that you need to be a good dad, they're, they're inside you. God stitched them into you. They don't come out until you're holding your kid. It's the craziest thing. But it's true. And the same thing is true in our passage when it comes to the ability to witness and testify for God in persecution. He says, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. In that time, in that moment, they're going to pull you out of the streets. You are going to have the spirit of God that is going to equip you. I think about it all the time. What if I don't? tribulate well? What if I don't suffer well? What if I don't struggle well? When we stand for Christ, when we are his witness, the spirit of God empowers us. The spirit of God comes and fills us. Amen? Amen. I just want to end by reading, oh man, I don't have time. Uh, I'm going to end there. I want you to go home though and read 2 Peter chapter 3. That's your assignment. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's exactly what Peter's talking about in his epistle. He's like, people are going to come and they're going to go, where's your Messiah? He said he was coming. And they're going to mock and they're going to, and, and he says, keep your attention on your holiness, on your godliness. Continue to pursue the Lord. Be ready. The point is we need to keep the oil in our lamps. We need to keep our eye on the horizon. Amen? Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the way that you love us, the way that you prepare us for these types of things, God. Lord, passages like this, they're, they're, they're heavy, they're hard, but God, we live in a really broken world and we need ultimate reality. And ultimate reality is that Jesus, you have come and you have won and you have conquered and you're coming again. You are coming again. And when your foot touches down on the Mount of Olives, everything is gonna change. New heavens, new earth, resurrected creation, eternal heavens and earth in your presence forever, fullness of joy. Thank you, God, for that reality. Lord, make us people that take you seriously. Take your word seriously. Take what you say seriously, Father. Lord, make us a family, Lord, that cares for each other in tribulation. Lord, each of us deal with different levels of trouble every day. Help us to be a family that cares for each other in the fire. Lord, we can't make our struggles and pains go away, Lord Jesus, but we invite you into them. We ask you to work and to purify this church, God. Refine this church and use us so that the gospel can go out to the nations. Start in Grant's past, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. You can head off on your way. We'll see you next week.